Well, what a unique time to be able to um, share this time with you on Christmas Day, which is a Sunday. It, it happens. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a specific person. Um, uh, I, 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 like, I like details, if you know me. And so it's actually not every seven years. It's every 6, 5, 6, 11. 6, 5, 6, 11. Depending on how the leap year falls, uh, when we see ourselves with the... Um, having the chance to have Christmas Day on a Sunday. The next one's going to be 2033. I probably won't be preaching that day. <laughs> I'm just thinking ahead. Or maybe I will. Who knows? <laughs> but I thought, hey, you know, it, it, it's Christmas Day, right? And so why not take a time to, um, to just bring you into my world a little bit uh, because it is Christmas Day and what the Iman family would typically do on a Christmas morning. Basically, we would, uh, early on in the early days, uh, the rule was that the kids weren't able to come out until 8 o'clock because we'd be up at like, they'd be up at like 6 a.m. getting ready to go and all that. But, and now it, it's turned that you have to be out by 9. You know? it's, a, it's a different thing, you know. Like, come on, we got to get the day started, you know. Uh, we would get, we'd get together, and uh, the first thing we'd do is stockings, which aren't as a big deal as they used to be. And then we would have a wonderful breakfast with some eggs and some toasts and, and waffles and stuff like that and sausage. And then after we cleaned up, we would go and we would gather around the nativity set. We have a beautiful nativity set that my cousin Rick built uh, out of stained glass. Just stunning. When the sun hits it, it's just beautiful. But we have that on a table and all the gifts are under the nativity set because the nativity set speaks of the first gift of Christmas, the primary one, the reason we give gifts, and the, it points back to all that is so necessary about this beautiful season. And so we gather around the, the, the nativity set, and we hear again the story that we have know so well. And I just thought, because it is Christmas Day, and because we've spent the entire season of Advent looking into the Luke story and, and asking different questions and peeling it back, that maybe I would just take some time this morning to um, read the story again, only do it the way that I do at home. So folks who are in, uh, in their home right now in their pajamas and whatever else, um, I'm going to invite you into my house for a second here, and we're going to just read the Christmas story the way that I try to do it with my family um, on Christmas Day. I want to begin by reminding us all that uh, the writers of the Christmas story are Matthew and Luke. Like me, they enjoy details. They like to be exact in what they do. Now, Matthew was an accountant. He wanted everything to line up. You read his gospel, you can see that. He's very meticulous about that. Uh, he knew personally the people who were part of that day, that, uh, that birthday. Uh, he knew Mary traveled with her, spoke to her on a regular basis. He knew Jesus, spoke to him on a regular basis. He's a personal relationship with them. He heard the story from them. Luke was a good physician. He also was a detailed guy. He uh, researched meticulously all the events of the story of Jesus' life. He tells us that in the first opening words of his gospel, so that we might be certain of the things that we hope for. I believe he interviewed Mary I think he talked to others who were part of that, probably went to Nazareth and checked them out and talked to folks in Bethlehem as well, perhaps. But his words are accurate and true. What we hear in what I'm about to read is the truth. It's actually what happened. It's not some Marvel comic book movie. These things actually took place, and they have a very specific meaning that we want to hear about. As we think about how the story is true, we want to begin with Matthew's account and realize that there are two primary human players in this, Mary and Joseph. Mary was 
a young lady in her teenage years, 14, 15, 16, we're not sure where, but she was a devout follower of God. You can hear that in her words. I mean, when she sings the Magnificat, when she responds to Elizabeth, when she responds to the angel. I mean, she is a woman of deep, deep faith. She understood the scriptures. She understood what God's intent was for his world and his creation. She came from a devout family. She was intent upon following all parts of the law. She was also a descendant of King David. And then there's Joseph, the man to whom she was betrothed. Joseph, we know, was a good man. He was a, a common laborer. The Greek calls him a tecton. We would think of him as a carpenter, but more likely with the materials he had, he was probably a stonemason, a hardworking guy. We know very little about him, but we do know that he was a righteous man. He lived rightly in his relationship with other people. And it's interesting, but there was a group of people <clears throat> They were called the tzatzikim. They were the righteous ones. They didn't have the certification of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any of the religious leaders, but they really desired to follow the law of God and do it right. And I think Joseph might have been part of that group. We do know that there was a very interesting thing we see that gives us insight into his heart. Remember how Jesus uh, uh, commanded and pushed the Pharisees and the leaders of the law to consider what this means when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the heart of God right there. I des God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And when, 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 um, when Joseph decides to divorce Mary privately so that she, he wouldn't put her into public disgrace, I think he's showing mercy and not sacrifice. Because he could have just laid down the law on that girl, you know? But he didn't. What we see in Joseph is a very devout man who desired to follow the law of God, and I think understood the heart of God in a very beautiful way. He too was a descendant of David. And they both lived in the city of, or the town really, of Nazareth. Nazareth was made up of family members and friends, and it was a tightly knit community so that anything that was outside of societal or scriptural norm would have been known about. There were no secrets in this town. They were a very uh, energetic town about the things of God. I mean, you think about three decades later when Jesus came back and said he was the Messiah and they tried to throw him off a cliff, remember that? I think that when Mary became clear that Mary was pregnant and she wasn't supposed to be yet, I think that there was some possibility of the town doing her harm. With that as background, let's go to our story as we know it so well. Matthew records in chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Remember, being pledged is betrothed. It's far more than our engagement in our culture. Uh, they were considered to be married. They just hadn't had the ceremony yet, and they hadn't consummated the marriage, but they were supposed to be acting as though they were married because they were. It goes on, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, there it is, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, mercy, not sacrifice, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Why would Joseph be afraid to bring Mary in? I mean, Mary's reputation is going to be ruined. Once it's known publicly that she's pregnant and she's not supposed to be pregnant yet, I mean, she is just ruined at that point. Joseph would be too. Oh, he was afraid. How is this going to play out on me? The angel says, don't be afraid. But his reputation would be sullied as well. In fact, Jesus' reputation was also marred for the rest of his life. There were times when people would say, we know who our father is. You might remember that one. <laughs> Intonating that we don't know who your father is. We know who ours is. We don't know who yours is. And there was another time when they said, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the son of Mary? No, no, no. Back in that culture, they would have said son of Joseph if they knew that that was his father. But there was some question about that there. So don't be afraid, Joseph, because I know this is going to bring loss to your life. There's going to be a greater gain that you may not realize. The story goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. I think it's interesting, but both Mary and Joseph surrendered themselves to the Lord's leading in their life, even when they didn't know what it would entail or what it would mean or why he was doing it. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, which means salvation or, or God saves we pick it up again in Luke chapter 2. So Matthew kind of gives us the big overview. Luke kind of takes us into greater detail. New in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. David did a wonderful job with this a couple weeks ago, talking about how this falls into play in history and all that. So I'll let you go back to that, that sermon to hear that. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. That, that, that last line, <laughs> that last line would have stopped readers in their track. She was pledged to be married and was expecting a child. What? What's going on with that? And technically, I don't think Mary needed to go with, with Joseph to Bethlehem. But Joseph brought her along, and possibly for a number of different reasons. I think one of the reasons might be that he was going to protect her from what the town might do to her, not necessarily physically, but the, but the, 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 uh, the pressure that goes on her if he wasn't there to protect her from the townspeople. Or maybe it's just the fact that he knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he said, Mary's got to come with me. For whatever reason, they took the trip together. And while they were there, the scripture says in verse 6, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, contrary to some of what we think about, the word that we translate in there technically is not an inn like a Hotel 6 or something, okay? Bethlehem was a small town. There really wasn't an inn there. 
This is the word, the same word that is used to talk about the upper room. This has to do with a guest room, an extra room in someone's house. Uh, Mary and Joseph are going to their family homestead, the place where their family is. They go to one of the family homes, but it's already filled with a family member because there's, everybody's coming in to be registered. So in that family home, they say, well, we, can't, we don't have a space for you here in the house, but because we have a cave that has, is a place for our animals, why don't you go there? That cave could have been within the compound, it could have been outside the compound, but that was the place where Mary and Joseph were given to seek shelter. And it's interesting, it's interesting, but here in Bethlehem is this place in a cave that's used to house animals, is where the, is where the God of creation is born into human flesh. And by the way, the manger was likely stone carved out, not a little piece of wood like this, but a stone carved out. That's what we find in archaeological digs, that's what remains. And here is this, the baby in the manger here, and just three miles away, and David talked about this as well, in the Herodian, this opulent palace fortress of Herod, where you would expect the king of the universe to be born, is Herod. And the shepherds and others are called to believe. Can you believe that the, the baby in that stone-hewn manger has more authority than the king in the castle? It's a fascinating contrast to think about. Back to the story, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. They were out in their fields. Wait a minute, aren't there pens? Doesn't Jesus talk about being the, the doorway to the sheep? Doesn't he talk about being having sheep in the pens? Yeah, typically they're in the pens. But one time each year, they're out in the fields. It's lambing season. The time when new lambs are being born, and the shepherds are out all night long, watching over, protecting them from predators. Lambing season could be anywhere from late December to early June, probably February, April, March, somewhere in there. Likely that's the time that Jesus was born. We've landed on December 25th, I think for a couple of possible reasons. A lot of folks point to uh, you know, 325 AD or so, the Christians were trying to, to uh, take away the power of pagan nations and pagan revelry, and so they were trying to say, well, let's have Jesus be born, the son of righteousness, be born on, on December 25th when the, everyone else celebrates Saturnalia, and we could begin to, to, to steal that away from the pagans. And I, I think this is something more than that. Jewish belief was that when it came to the life of a prophet, God honored the prophet by having the prophet die on the same day that he was conceived. It was believed that Jesus probably died on March 25th or April 6th. Spretch that out nine months, December 25th. April 6th, nine months later, January 6th. Those, I think, are really the reasons that we have this date, is that it had to do with, with Jewish custom and understanding. And, and even there is a, there's evidence of a Christian uh, group that was celebrating Christ's birth in 286 AD, long before Constantine ever came to power. So I think there's something more going on than just some kind of cultural funkiness that was taking place there. The Christians believed that Jesus was a godly, holy prophet. He, they believed he was God and that God would, would have something specific about the timing of his death. Oh, they're also March 25th. I got too much. Would you please shut me up? <laughs> Talking to my wife. <laughs> she usually sits beside me going, that's enough, Rob. Some believe that March 25th 
was the, um, the, also the day that God created all things, created the earth. And so it was thought that, well, what great, that the one who created the earth would also be born on March 25th, and so then nine months later, and December 25th, and all that stuff. Back to the story, thank you. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. An angel and the glory come side by side, and anytime the glory of the Lord is there, there's fear, because there's a powerful, ominous sense of holiness, and we know that we're not holy. And so the shepherds were afraid. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. This is not judgment. This is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. He rescues us. He's the anointed one, the promised one that God said, and he's Lord. And any time an angel calls someone Lord... He's talking about God Almighty. He's talking about Yahweh. So this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the common sight in Bethlehem, and so that would be a sign. Oh, there it is. Look, it happened. But I can't help but wonder as well that we know that um, it was the sheep in Bethlehem that were the sheep that would be used in the Passover celebration, the Passover sacrifice. And when the sheep in Bethlehem were born, if one was born that didn't ha appear to have any marks, appeared to be uh, without blemish, they would wrap that little, that little sheep, that baby sheep, uh, in, in, lin in cloths of linen so that they might protect it from becoming marred. And so I wonder if they came and they saw the baby wrapped in the same strips of cloth that they were wrapping some of their lambs in, and there was a sign there because we know Jesus would one day die on Passover at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the exact time the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Phenomenal stuff. This is not by accident. Nobody made this up. Suddenly a great company, the heavenly host, appeared in the, with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. She looked at this and said, ah, what is that? What is that? How does that impact me? What does that mean? The shepherds responded by going, wow, can you believe this? I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I got to tell you. You know the story. You've heard it too. How would you respond in pondering and in proclaiming what do you do with this news? Well, that brings us then to Matthew, going back to Matthew to take a look at the, uh, the epilogue, so to speak, of the Magi coming to, to get worship, the newborn king. And I won't take a lot of time on that. It's just fascinating to think about the Magi and Herod and Herod and who, how he was paranoid about people taking over his kingdom. And then there's this star. Oh, my goodness. 
The star that appears early before Jesus is born alerts them that the king is coming. It lasts over time. It moves. It's something that not everybody understands. Only the, only the learned can understand what it means. But then there's a star that everybody can see and is amazed by. And it's just, it's a stunning little thing. And if you know that our, our solar system is like a clock, isn't it? You can fast forward that clock ahead so you know exactly where like Mars is going to be if you want to drop a rover on it. You know, you, you got to be able to turn it forward to be able to figure out where all the planets are going to be and it's that predictable. But you can do the same thing backwards. You can turn the clock backwards and see where the stars used to be. Some, some people have done that. And back in the early 90s, I read an article I said, yeah, I think they found it. I think they found what the Bethlehem star really is. It lasts over a period of time. It comes really lasts long. Some people can see it and not understand it. Other people see it and do understand it. Really bright light in the sky. It moves and guides the Magi. Interesting stuff. What that means, if that is indeed the star of Bethlehem, is that when God created the universe, when he flung the planets and the stars in place, he set the clock in motion so that when the time had fully come, yeah. The time had fully come. God would send his son. And he said it in the skies. Because the heavens declare, and it's beautiful stuff. So, the haunting question that has traveled down through the centuries comes to us today, too. What child is this? Mary and Joseph pondered that one. You know, disrupting their life, breaking their dreams, uh, causing who knows what's going to happen. You know, Mary was told a sword will pierce your soul too. What does that mean? I mean, it was a total life disruption. That's who this child was. For Herod, it was a double threat. He was the righteous, the rightful king, heir to the throne that, that Herod had. To the Magi, he was worthy of disrupting their lives for a long while and a big trip and a very expensive journey. You know, to the shepherds. It was a great announcement of justice and hope that was breaking in to their world. Who is this child? Who is this child to you? And that brings us full circle back to that part of our family's Christmas traditions. For in the West, we tend to focus on preparing for the day. December 25th, that's it. I've got to get all my gifts ready. I've got to get the Christmas letters out. Got that, 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 you know. And we focus on the day so that we can be ready for the day. But in Jesus' era and in the Eastern world, they focus on the symbols so they don't miss the meaning of that day. When we focus on the day, we have our gifts ready. But by focusing on the day, do we miss receiving the gift that was given to us? What all this star in the sky and the people journeying and Caesar Augustus and everything else, all that this laid forward to make possible. Do we miss the birth that was given to us? And so this is the little tradition that we have that sits under the, um, uh, the nativity scene. It is simply a uh, little cardboard box wrapped in brown paper that the dog got to once, punctured holes in it. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to fix that. It's perfect. Because this box is emits all these pretty gifts and the bright colors and the bows and all. It reminds us that the most profound gift, the most expensive gift, the best gift that was ever given 
came arrived wrapped in a way that no one would have ever expected it to be as important as it actually is. Would you please pray with me? Lord, help us see the meaning behind this story. It's true. It's not just made up. So help us be like Mary, Lord. Help us treasure all of these things. Help us ponder them and consider what they might mean. Help us be like Joseph, Lord. Surrendering more fully to you, no matter what that might mean for the dreams and the plans that we've set. Lord, would you please set in our hearts the profound reality of this story and let its truth change our lives as we choose to receive from you the greatest gift ever given. Even though it's disguised, you show us what it is. We receive that gift from you with gratitude and with humility for what you've done. Like Mary, help us treasure these things. Like Joseph, help us surrender to you. And like the shepherds, help us joyfully share this good news with everyone we see in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.